Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Tonight's program is sponsored by Pomegranate Noir. <laughs> Wear it and make love. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Listen, uh, we are grateful to be part of the program. We're being a little bit freer tonight because we're getting ready in about a month to go on a television station where I have to cut back on some of that stuff. So be a fun show and some informative stuff to put out there to you. We're grateful to God to be part of his ministry and that he allows me to live. Uh, We heard rumors that Dr. James White uh, of Arizona believes he needs to set me straight on my views. I guess he's been on the internet saying there's things that he wants to straighten out. He is welcome to call in anytime And I would love for the doctor to explain some things for us. He's an expert on Calvinism, and he goes and dispels all the problems that uh, people have with Calvinism. So, Jimmy, baby, give us a call. Love to talk to you anytime, and that's how we're going to respond to that. And with that, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts sang... Come and see, and I saw, and behold, a white horse. We're in John chapter 6 in our milk gathering on Sundays, and in this chapter, it's all about Jesus teaching people that he's the bread of life. Uh, It's an interesting chapter because what uh, the Lord says to people there uh, causes those who are following him, most of them, to walk away. And what did he tell them that was so offensive? He told the masses who were pursuing him because the day before he had produced fish and bread miraculously for them to eat. And they came and pursued him again. And he says, you're only following after me because you want more food. And um, then he says over seven times in this spot about being the bread of heaven, from heaven, he says, I have come from heaven, come from heaven. He says it seven times in that. And then he drops the, the bomb. He says, Who, he says, I'm the bread that comes from heaven. And then he says, whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at that last day. Boom, the crowds are like, this guy has gone too far, eating his flesh, drinking his blood, What the heck? And so, uh, of course, religion has taken those things, Catholicism, and who literally take their communion, literally, transubstantiation means that right at the moment, the wine or the wafer, uh, the host touches your tongue, it is Christ's flesh and his blood. They literally take it that way. And the LDS, they use communion emphatically as a means Uh, for people to receive weekly sanctification from their sin. In other words, they tell people, you come to sacrament meeting, communion meeting, you partake of the bread and water, and every time you do that every week, as long as you come every week, you are being sanctified and cleansed from the sin uh, and renewing your baptismal covenants. Later in the chapter, after teaching this concept to the masses, and John tells us that many left him at this point, the disciples come to him and they say, this is a hard saying. Who can bear it? Who is going to be able to eat your flesh and blood? And it's here that Jesus makes the matter completely clear, just so clear. He says in response, listen to this, it is the spirit that quickeneth, that means that gives life. 
the flesh profits nothing, meaning my, my flesh isn't going to do it. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life, John 6, 63. So in this section of chapter six, the word eat is used like eight or nine times. But in light of verse 63, it says it again, it is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profits nothing, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, they are life. So does Jesus mean we are to literally eat his body like the Catholics say? Are we to do communion uh, like the, and so that we can always be with him as the LDS say? Never, never. So the question then remains, he says eat eight or nine times. He says uh, uh, he is the bread that comes down from heaven uh, six or seven times. What does he mean? Okay, look closely one more time at that verse again. He says to the disciples, it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they, the words, are spirit. And they, the words that he spoke, are life. Okay? In other words, Christians consume Christ. We eat him. We digest him by reading and hearing and pondering his words. That is how, that's how it's to be understood. They are spirit, Jesus said. They are life, he says. Remember in John 1, 1, that all familiar passage in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And then in verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us. Jesus said, the words I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So let me just say it plainly. A church which has ritualized communion that has taken the bread and wine literally or make it mandatory, mandatory, or has predicted, uh, excuse me, has predicated that you have to have a membership or that you have to be worthy or that uh, any of that comes along with partaking these elements that Jesus introduced to the 12, they've missed the point entirely here in John chapter six. Worse yet, any church that does not provide the word of God, because that's spirit and that's life, he says, that, that they neglect teaching that word of God has missed the opportunity of what Jesus is telling his believers they must do to ingest him. In other words, sum, sum it up, as we hear the word and Jesus is teaching us through the written word, we ingest him in our ears, through our eyes, through our senses, and, and he becomes part of us and we become part of him. It has nothing to do with the physical. The flesh does nothing, he says. It has to do with the words that are in, in the word of God. And with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we uh, seek you, love you, and hope that the message tonight that launches us into this new year will be clearly understood, and the points will be made, and uh, we pray for our volunteers and the, who give so much time and, and attention for our supporters uh, who give their prayers and their money and their uh, heartfelt uh, uh, support of the ministry by sharing it with people. All these people who are involved, we love them, and we just pray that you'll be with them and, and anybody else who's seeking for truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want to start this first show off in this new year with a few quotes for your consideration. Now, there are 11 of them, and some of them come from the minds of people who uh, may not impress you in terms of who they are. 
they are people who even who have hated Christianity. But it doesn't mean they haven't made good points in this area. Ready? Let's go. Number one. People are never so completely and enthusiastically evil as when they act out of religious conviction. The next one. There are very few things more dangerous than inbred religious certainty. The next one, what can you say to a man who tells you he prefers obeying God rather than man, and that as a result, he's going to go to heaven if he cuts your throat? Of course, Voltaire, uh, not a real friend of Christianity. Fanatics can justify practically any atrocity to themselves. The more untenable their position becomes, the harder they hold to it, and the worse the things they are willing to do to support it. Next one. In the long run, I certainly hope information is the cure for fanaticism, but I am afraid information is more the cause than the cure. Next one. If I were asked for a one-sentence soundbite on religion, I would say I was against it. Next one, Guy de Maupassant says, patriotism is a kind of religion. It is the egg from which wars are hatched. Next one, we have quit, we have to quit confusing a madness with a mission. Napoleon said, there is no place in a fanatic's head where reason can enter. Paul Tillich, a questionable figure in Christian uh, uh, history, says, History has shown that the most terrible crimes against love have been committed in the name of fanatically defended doctrines. And one of my favorites from Winston Churchill, a fanatic is one who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. Why start off the year with these quotes on religious fanaticism, especially quotes from some people who, as human beings, stood against Christianity? They play a role into something that we're going to t discuss before we go to the phones. Along the same lines, almost a decade ago, I wrote that book, Born Again Mormon. A lot of Christians and some LDS people hated the title and were really rubbed the wrong way by a couple of stances that we presented in the book. Namely, that I called myself a born-again Mormon. They wanted that changed. There's no such thing. Change that. The next one was that I told people that they didn't have to make leaving the LDS church an issue in their lives. And then I emphasize this point by even, uh, even more by having the audacity to, audacity to suggest that maybe they even stay in the LDS church. People could not see the forest for the trees when we were doing that. that I, we say it, I mean it, but there's a reason for that. And then we said, I recognize many LDS people were better Christians than I would ever be. That drove some people absolutely nuts. I am bringing this up now again for a reason, which we're going to get to in a minute. Then at the back of Born Again Mormon, I actually listed, compiled a list of people who had greatly influenced my thinking up to that point in time. There was reverberation over this list as well because many Christian brothers and sisters wondered how and why I would include noted Catholics, Mormons, atheists, anarchists, and communists in my lineup. Criticism from so-called Christian apologists said things like, it is noteworthy to consider the character of some of the people McCraney includes at the back of his illogical book. How could a Christian actually acknowledge the insights of noted enemies of the faith? Question mark. As an FYI, this is the list of people I acknowledge as having influence over my views. See if you can see any relationship between them. 
Arminius, he's a proponent of free will. Marcus Aurelius, he's a Stoic Christian hater. Robert Bork, conservative legal scholar. Hubie Brown, an LDS Democrat. Johnny Cash, Christian musician with a lot of carnal troubles. John Calvin, father of Calvinism, thanked in the back of that book. Patsy Cline, female country singer. Sam Cooke, black musician extraordinaire. Charles Darwin, father of evolutionary thought. Rene Descartes, the I think therefore I am guy. Jonathan Edwards, the guy who wrote and presented sinners in the hands of an angry God. Viktor Frankl, Austrian psychiatrist. Sigmund Freud, founder of psychoanalysis. And listen, there's, there's something, you know, there's a guy that I greatly admire. I've had uh, online uh, dialogue with him back and forth. He's a UCLA professor. He looks at, at uh, Christian faith in a very different way. In fact, he's not only a UCLA professor, he has a band and he sings for it. Let's listen to one of their tunes. Professor Graffin, Greg Graffin, the singer of Bad Religion, he is an ardent atheist. And he says, you know, I really get sick of what Christianity is doing to the music that I have cut my teeth on for years and years. They're taking it and adopting it and making it their own. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take Christian lyrics and I'm going to do my music to it. Why not just meddle the whole thing together, he says. He makes a good point, doesn't he? Doesn't that make some kind of sense that he's trying to portray? I don't agree with him in his atheism, but why not? I mean, why not? Let's just mix the whole thing up and just do what the world does. Don Henley, musician. Herman Hess and Victor Hugo, authors. Flavius Josephus, Jewish historian. 
Carl Jung, psychiatrist, psychotherapist, Immanuel Kant, philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, Christian father of existentialism, Martin Luther, religious reformer, Niccolo Machiavelli, Italian humanist, Karl Marx, communist, Royal O'May, psychologist, Vernon J. McGee, Christian pastor, Thomas Merton, Catholic, Catholic mystic, Frederick Nietzsche, philosopher who was all about godless will to power. Robert Persig, author of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Ayn Rand, author and founder of Objectivism. Adrian Rogers, pastor teacher. Jean-Paul Sartre, father of atheistic existentialism. Paul Simon, singer-songwriter. B.F. Skinner, a psychologist who believed he could create people in any way he wanted. St. Augustine, influential theologian in the early Roman Catholic Church. And A.W. Tozer, another Christian pastor. I actually neglected, I saw this later, that uh, we included Charles Stanley, a pastor, Vincent Van Gogh, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, Brigham Young, and Billy Zoom of the band X, who were included in this list of people that we gave acknowledgement to. Why? Why would I include that at the beginning, at the ending of Born Again Mormon? What was it about the thinking that was included in that? Talk about that in a second. We began airing Heart of the Matter in 2006. I stood firm on the following, that getting people to leave Mormonism is not our job, and that if someone wanted to remain, that was between them and God. That American evangelicalism had plenty of in-house problems and issues, and exiting LDS people who were looking for a church home needed to be very careful to avoid them. That Calvinism was theologically as reprehensible as Mormonism, and that our ministry was not against LDS people in the least, but that we completely stood against the institution called Mormonism, actually against any religionist. In February of 2010, I was interviewed by John Dellen of Mormon Stories fame, the graphics there at mormonstories.org. I said in this interview a number of things that again angered a number of LDS people, a number of Christian people, brothers and sisters, including that I say the no one needs to use the Anglicanized name of Jesus in order to be saved. You don't have to say it. The sinner's prayer. Jesus, it's not there. You confess the Lord. That Muslims and Buddhists and other is and ism people can be saved. Again, only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But they can. That the Bible is not perfect in its present state. What? That was heresy. Again, the original manuscript's perfect. What we have today, very good. But again, not perfect. That in some respects, I knew I have, would have gotten along swimmingly with Joseph Smith. That was said in the uh, interview. That irritated everybody. Again, the zealots, the fanatics, were scratching themselves like dogs with fleas. On June 2nd of 2011, faithful LDS church member Mitt Romney announced that he was running for president of the United States. Between that date and November of 2012, we watched as evangelical Christians who typically stood against Mormonism sold their souls to the God of this world and pushed openly for Christians everywhere to elect a Mormon, calling him the lesser of two evils. It was the, one of the most shameful periods in American evil, evangelicalism as, as far as I'm concerned. Then one week ago uh, this week, excuse me, one year ago this week, after visiting 10 of the largest Christian churches in Utah and announcing that we were gonna spend our year examining what we had observed, 
the great Christian friend to the LDS in Utah, an open supporter of Romney, a rabid conservative evangelical fanatic, and a man who has himself introduced as Reverend, rallied the state's pastors and got us booted off local television where we had the greatest impact on people who are in Mormonism and those who are coming out. Over 2013, more factors or fuel has been added to this long-burning fire. As we openly challenge many of the practices found in modern American evangelicalism as a whole, we talked about the Christian cultural applications, faith healings, uh, the name it and claim it, the bigger is not better when it comes to church, so-called Christian worship, tithes. We uh, have shown an equal amount of disdain for the untruths in the Christian body as we have in, the, in Mormonism. Of late, we've even hit on Calvinism, questioned the existence of the lakes, Lake of Fire's eternality, and have openly wondered about the historic Christian position uh, on the Trinity and the most and most of their present eschatological positions. All of that stuff we're questioning. Who are we? What are we really trying to do? Is there a point to all of this over the scope of where we began, what we've always been presenting, and what we're doing today? Listen, folks, there has been a point to everything we have done since day one. It's been there ever since. A point has never left my sights. And so while black and white thinkers who are desperate need for certainty, and they'll take it from men, have considered me unstable, and Christian dogmatists have wholly supported the ministry as long as we echoed what they wanted to hear, then turned like rabid dogs when they don't hear what they want to hear, and where LDS people who are unable to hear anything negative about their church have sent us truckloads of emails, hate mails, questioning what we are doing, we have been aimed at the same thing from the get-go. Yes, the focus has shifted. Our emphasis has shifted. But the main goal has always been the same. So let me set up the direction of our programs for 2014 before opening the phones, answering emails, by plainly explaining, reiterating what our methods and focus have always been toward. Ready? Number one, to introduce Latter-day Saints to the God-given gift of spiritual rebirth through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the number one purpose. Number two, to assist born-again Mormons in their sacred uh, mission of peacefully bringing other Latter-day Saints to the Lord. Number three, to help born-again Mormons appreciate and support positive aspects of church membership while simultaneously but politely rejecting any doctrine or practice contrary to biblical truths and authentic religious practice. And four, to patiently help initiate an integration of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints into the existing body of Christ. All of that's on our website for the past 10 years. All of it's been in our first book for, and the second and third and fourth printings of that book for the past uh, 13, 12 years. Uh, these four objectives were plainly stated. Nothing has changed. And everything we have said and done has been geared toward those four points, whether you can see the connections or not. What has changed is that viewers and critics have woken up to the fact that anything and everything that hinders our ability to reach these four objectives, we will put under fire. No matter how sacred, no matter how traditional, no matter how appealing it might be to a Christian or to LDS folk, if it does not meet with the sound biblical exegetical study, we will put it under fire. 
is it doesn't matter what it is if it cannot stand up to a, a good reading of what the bible says as a whole we will we will call it into question so in other words we'll never take sides or play favorites if you're lds and you're right i side with you if you're a christian and you're right i side with you if you're an atheist and you're right i side with you i don't care what side anyone comes from i want truth we want truth and so truth seekers pursue it. And when things come up and say, oh, that kind of makes me uncomfortable, you have to examine where is it coming from? Or do we automatically just label everything heretical? If something about Christianity is false, we'll kick it to the curb and enjoy stomping it to death. So the problem with taking a firm stance on anything other than Jesus, you know, uh, if you are wholly against something or if you're wholly supportive of something blindly, it leads to a type of prejudice and then to a blindness and the blindness leads to unbridled fanaticism and which leads to the opposite of the nature of God, which is love. And so when you allow that stuff to creep in, you will find yourself shorter and shorter on love and more and more dogmatic on position and theology when we really can't say one way or another on most of it. So admittedly, I am hard on the LDS, and especially the LDS apologists and the defenders of their faith. But when people are blind, sometimes the only thing we can do is light a fire and hope they feel the heat. Uh, but this is just a method to introduce truth and thought. And in our efforts to achieve these four missional points, not only applied to the LDS alone, everything and everyone is game. So let me review quickly the four missional points and we'll open up the phone lines to get a better perspective of what we're gonna do in 2014. Point, uh, purpose point number one, to introduce the Latter-day Saints to the God-given gift of spiritual rebirth through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've said it a thousand times. The LDS as a whole don't understand rebirth. It's very difficult for them to even comprehend it. They believe doctrinally that it comes processionally by going week in and week out and taking the sacrament. And that cleanses them. They have no idea what it means to really be changed from the heart. And so as a result, they're in bondage since only the truth can set people free. But while our focus is on the LDS, we've noticed that many, many other people have come to know the truth uh, who are seeking who are never LDS in the first place. In other words, in our effort to explain rebirth, we have seen other people come into Christianity as well. In these efforts, again, our allegiance is not to churches or traditions or to the doctrines of man, but to a sound contextual understanding of the word of God. Point number two, to assist born-again Mormons in their sacred mission of peacefully bringing other Latter-day Saints to the Lord. People who have never been LDS sometimes have difficulty understanding why when you come to know the truth is it so difficult. And it's kind of a myopic point of view. It's kind of a heartless point of view. When you realize that the person you married is still LDS, the children you have brought up, if you have them, is, are still LDS, your extended family are, your job's tied to it, everything's tied to it. And so often when someone who has come to know the truth is LDS and they go to somebody who is a Christian, the Christian might say some ridiculous things like, well, if you really love Jesus, you'll just, you'll just walk from it all. You know, if you're really a believer, uh, who do you love more, Jesus or your spouse? Things like that. And so we wanna help 
uh, LDS people come out in a, in a way that's going to be uh, honoring to God and to family and to marriage and those things, and not go in and destroy those things over religion, but try to support them and help them see there's another way. So when it's done as Jesus wants to do it, we see entire families walk out from Mormonism in faith. And when it's done wrong, we see divorce, heartache, misery, destroyed families, which is not in God's design. It might be in Mormonism's design, but it's not in God's. Point number three, to help born-again Mormons appreciate and support positive aspects of church membership while simultaneously but politely rejecting any doctrine or practice contrary to the biblical truth and authentic religious practice. Admittedly, when I first came out of Mormonism, I saw that it had little value in any way. I say this because in the end, Mormonism taken as a whole, what it does is it takes people and it, it injects its, interjects itself between them and God. And it makes them idolaters because they point all their attention to the church. The church is, a, is above them, not God. Church, 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 church. And then the church then relays whatever to God. But the church has become the intermediary, and that's idolatry. And so uh, nevertheless, there are both, listen closely, practical and theological truths Mormonism has that Christianity has either overlooked or rejected. And they are blind to those things. And so I think that it's our, our purpose to help bring those things out. And it's here I refuse to take sides, but I'm only interested in the truth, no matter who says it or supports it. So finally, point number four, to patiently help integrate, initiate an integration of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints into the existing body of Christ. Now, in order to achieve this goal, two main things have to happen. First, all non-biblical practices and doctrines found in Mormonism must be rejected for what they are. Got that? You hear me clearly? All of those non-biblical practices and things. And that's why we attack it, to say, hey, and, and members are starting to question that stuff, okay? In some measure, they seem to be moving toward that in some ways. They're duplicitous about it, like those hierarchy old guys are. But, you know, in time, maybe that stuff will get down to the end of the row and, and maybe it will start to produce some fruit. Uh, God is at the helm. He knows what he's doing. But the second thing that has to happen is all non-biblical practices and doctrines found in modern Christianity must be rejected for what they are, doctrines of men. Only then will thinking, observant, truth-seeking LDS people say, this is worth coming out of the faith that my whole family and life has been part of when I can see that all the shenanigans and all the baloney has been stripped out of Christianity and they really are following the Bible at least. You see, we, we, we think we can go after and say your Book of Mormon and your Doctrine and Covenants and Pearl of Great Price are a big joke and so are all these other things in your history. And they might be able to say, yeah, it is. But they turn and they look. And if they have a mind and they have a library card and they have a computer and they have some time, they're going to see the same problems going on in Christianity. So this will be our focus this year. In fact, we're going to call 2014 the year where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face to face. The machete is going to continue to swing both ways. With not a blade of grass remaining that is man-made, a man-made construct of religion. 
We pray that those who seek to worship in spirit and truth will find the shows worthwhile. And those who want to cling to tradition, whether it's LDS tradition or Christian tradition, can and will certainly move along. With that, let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. While the operators are clearing your just overabundance of calls right now, um, we are excited to announce the following. Along the I-15 here in Utah, there is a billboard, and it has a family. They're all smiling. They're, they're well-appointed. The kids look like healthy, well-adjusted kids, a teenage girl, a young boy, maybe 9 or 10, another one maybe 12, a father and mother look attractive. And it says, we're the Monet family, and we're Mormons, and it's crossed out. And it says, ex-Mormons, and it's crossed out. And then below it says, we're atheists. And it says, come explore your doubts with us. Now, that just breaks my heart. And it's our fault. Uh, we haven't allowed God to make sense from a biblical perspective. I'm not trying to make God a man. I'm not trying to put, impose our theology or our ideas on him. But Christianity and Mormonism and everything else is partly responsible for this. And it's just sick. It's really bad that people have not had an opportunity to really understand who Jesus is, was, what he has done for every single person. And instead, we have really nice-looking families on billboards saying, hey, we're atheists. Come, ex come explore your doubts with us. Nothing wrong with exploring doubts, but that's a really sad, sad, sick uh, uh, indication of some things that are going on in our society. Uh, some people on phone, there's one phone line open if you want to call it, 801-590-8413. What's the problem, Sean? A, a question with church that expects much of their members. Uh, the problem is multifaceted, but really quickly, um, this is what happens. We have a choice to either really serve God or you have a choice to serve yourself institutions including campus and what we do are constantly tempted to serve themselves you are constantly tempted 
to get your agenda going and to make sure that you keep things moving and growing and spreading because when it does, you are more successful when you're at the helm. And so what happens when institutions then get people and prey upon them to constantly serve that institution, it's self-interest. And those people really aren't serving God, they're doing what the Mormons do, they're serving the institution. And, and so that's one of the problems is that institutions, religious institutions, churches, governments, you know, and some of it's healthy. Volunteerism's healthy. We love volunteers. But when it's all for the thing and for the guy and the woman and the, and the committee at the head of it, it becomes top-heavy, it becomes self-interested, and God is essentially set aside. What happens then is you stop, to, you stop telling the truth. It's too painful. It's just too darn painful. And because you'll start to see people go and you start to lose funds and people aren't filling the seats. And so you're not doing what God wants you to do. That's part of it. So it's a game of taking up then donations. It's a game of supporting the, uh, let me just tell you, just from my own experience, we used to go around and speak at churches. This is what the churches would, many churches would do. Hey, listen, we, I would say, don't do this, literally. Well, I have witnesses. And the pastor would get up and say, listen, Sean says don't do this, but we want to take up a collection in his name. We want to bring in a collection for Sean and his ministry. And so then people would say, oh, good, and they come up and they give all the money in the thing, and then the pastor would write a check from their thing and pass it on. Well, we learned that there was like, uh, like 2,800 bucks, and we got a check for 400 so there's one of the games that are played within churches. Another one is that they have, hey, feed the starving in Africa. And they have big, beautiful four-colored posters of a starving kid in Africa. And people donate their money for that cause, but only part of it gets there. And the rest of it goes. It's a, it's a business. They're games. And we're going to call it as it is. So, so that is part of the problem with uh, a church that expects much of their members. But... What might we do that we might work the works of God? They asked Jesus in John chapter 6. How can we work the works of God? So your question is, what's wrong with a church that expects a lot of its members? They asked Jesus, how do we do God's work? And you know what he told them? Believe. Believe on his son that he sent. That's what he says in John chapter 6. How can we work the works of God, Jesus? Believe on his son. So the church's job is not to get people to do. The church's job is to help reinforce people's belief. It's to get people to walk out stronger in their faith and not lighter in their pocketbook or stronger in their physical strength because they've been setting up chairs. It's, the church has never been about getting people to do. That's God's spirit getting you to do it on your own. The church is about establishing faith. And so that's a major problem uh, if it's not fortifying faith and belief. All right, we have a, Peter writes, what does Mormonism teach is required to live with Heavenly Father again? There's a big push among missionaries that says we are saved by grace through faith. There's nothing we can do. That's it. Saved, you know, and they intimate uh, when they go door to door that that means living with God after this life. Well, let's just start with the basics and I'll run through them quickly. Uh, every LDS eight-year-old is supposed to have faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know how that's manufactured, but you're supposed to believe it. Then repent for their sin, which is a whole process, and then be baptized by proper LDS authority, and then receive the gift of the Holy 
Holy Ghost. All eight-year-olds, if you're born in the Mormon church, are supposed to receive those four things. Okay, and once you have those in place, then you're supposed to have a belief in the restored gospel. And, uh, and, and if male, you're supposed to receive their priesthood. And then you're supposed to receive the temple endowment. And then you're supposed to receive the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. And then you're supposed to endure to the end. So the first part's for eight-year-olds. Everything else after that is for people as they go through the church. Now, on enduring to the end, most of the LDS apostles and prophets have defined enduring to the end in a number of different ways. And like the Doctrine and Covenants and Pearl of Great Price, that includes weekly or daily repenting. That includes daily prayer. And if you're married with your spouse alone and then with your family, it means daily and frequent scripture study. Again, if you're married with your spouse alone and with your family daily, if you do it as these leaders have told them to do, Monthly fasting, where you give the money you would have spent on your meals to the church, not in addition to your, uh, in addition to your tithing. Bearing testimony once a month, getting up and sharing the truthfulness of the gospel before the ward members or to others. Keeping the Sabbath day holy, that's the way they define it. Obeying the word of wisdom, which is the LDS laws of health. Sustaining local church leaders, priesthood leaders, obeying the law of chastity, paying a full tithe, other requested offerings, attending all church meetings, especially sacrament meeting and priesthood. This is all in a given week, you guys, and a given week to a month. Magnifying your church callings, uh, uh, obeying the laws of the land, which are loosely interpreted depending on the social status of the member. Uh, sharing the gospel, doing missionary work, full-time mission if you're a male and uh, of a certain age, doing family genealogy, saving your dead, going back through church history records and other records to find the genealogy, to then go into the temple and do the work, pay the tithing to get in the temple, be willing to consecrate everything to the church for the building up of, the, uh, of Mormonism. It's interesting, that's those City Creek ads. If you live here in Utah, you see these City Creek ads, they're salacious. I mean, they are like, they're like the best Vegas ads for the montage you've ever seen. The most beautiful people and their beautiful bodies and materialism. And, and it's just come and be part of City Creek and, 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 and do City Creek. And it's all about the whole thing. Around here, you see it everywhere. That's the LDS church. I mean, that's building up the kingdom of God. They've donated to that thing. Attending the temple, I said often, be a valiant home teacher. That means once a month, if you're a home teacher, you go to three or four families assigned to you and sit for an hour with them and give them a lesson that they don't want to hear and, and knock on doors and, they, and no one wants to do it, but they do it anyway. And if you're a woman, you're a visiting teacher and you go to three women during the uh, month and you visit them and they have more fun at it, I think. Uh, uh, following the apostles and prophets is the final one. And then if you include what the apostles and prophets have said, you have to add on bearing and raising children if at all possible, keeping a personal journal daily if possible, subscribing to church periodicals, the new era, the uh, Ensign, the new era, and the friend if you're a child. That's three magazines with three monthly subscriptions. They, the prophets say you should be reading. Honoring positive church history, but avoiding the negative. Observing specific grooming standards and requirements. No tats. Single piercings only if you're female. Adhering to apparel guidelines, skirt lengths, blouse buttons. Avoiding caffeinated drinks. That's not in the word of wisdom, but there's still this, you know, wink, wink deal about it. Maintaining a one-year food storage supply. 
participating in Boy Scouts if you're a male, 8 to 18. Remaining free from consumer debt unless it's for a house or for education. Avoiding R-rated movies and worse. You mean like PGs? Preparing for, for a full-time mission if an unmarried male for, and for couples with children not under 18. Assisting the church house maintenance. The, the members go and clean the, house, the church houses too. Uh, obtaining a college education or vocational training, participating in local, state, national politics. And of course, you know, there's certain, well, I won't go into that. Holding a weekly family home evening, uh, uh, accepting all church callings and assignments, avoiding doctrinal church intellectualism and certain symposia, striving to do good continually. All of those things they have emphatically stated are necessary for somebody to go from this life and enter into the realm where God lives. Okay, let's go to Blake and Monroe, North Carolina. Blake, you're on Heart of the Matter. Blake? Yeah. You're on the air. Hey, man. Man, I have been wanting to call your show. And uh, it's strange. I had a show I used to call one time, and I realized it was easier to call a show I could actually argue with but I haven't found anything to argue against you on. I just wanted to say I love you. I love your show. I love the ministry. I love that you challenge all the other things out there. I'm beginning to like North Carolina more and more. <laughs> Man, North Carolina loves you. <laughs> hey, uh, so what faith? Were you brought up in a religion? Nope. I didn't go to church until I was 29 years old. Wow. And where did you go, and what are you doing now? Uh, well, I first started off in the Church of Christ. We have a, we have a good brother who came from that. Well, I, when I went, there was certain things I questioned, and like, like out of Acts, they believe when Peter told the guys, asked, what must we do, and they said, we must, you know, you must be baptized for the remission of sins. They take that literally like the water baptism removes your sins. And then the preacher, he asked me to never enter into a Baptist church and things like that. And then it's funny, I actually ended up attending a Baptist church after I, I left the Church of Christ. <laughs> Rebellion works. I'm telling you. Anything you tell somebody, they're going to end up doing it. Jeez, so what are you doing now? Uh, actually, right now, I'm kind of looking for a church. I've attended um, Abundant Life Ministries, which was here in Monroe, and uh, it was a non-denominational church, a great church. Huh. But unfortunately, I guess the ties and whatnot that was being paid and the price of the building just didn't match up well enough. <laughs> So somebody got fired and someone thrown in jail. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, listen, Blake. Yeah. On that baptism thing, I want to make a comment where Peter says, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for a remission of sins. That yeah. for a remission of sins, the Church of Christ did not know this because they didn't have the Greek available. But you can read for in the terms of in order to, or you can read for in terms of as a result of. And the way it is written in that verse is as a result of. 
So be baptized as a result of you having a remission of sins. Not be baptized in order to uh, be, uh, get a remission of sins. So uh, that just hopefully, if anybody's watching and wondering about what the answer to that is, we get baptized because we know Jesus has come and saved us. That's why. And that kind of disputes the whole argument. Amen. Hey, Blake, really glad you called. Thanks for calling and keep watching. I'll do. Okay, see you later. All right, love you, brother. Love you too. Bye-bye. You ever notice that most of the people who love us have an accent like that? <laughs> I love it. Uh, let's go to Mike in Hopewell Junction, New York. Mike, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean. How you doing? Good. How are you doing? Good. Hey, I just wanted to call because, you know, I'm kind of on the same journey as you are, my wife and I. We're, uh, we were going, I called you a couple times before. We were um, going to a Calvary Chapel, and we still are. But, you know, we found a lot of that to be, a lot of that stuff, it's, it's sort of superfluous, you know, that they do in church. And uh, then we started, like, looking at, um, you know, uh, radical ways of being disciples of Christ and making disciples. Yeah. So we're kind of on that track right now. And we're, and we're, like, last year we were feeling what you were feeling and talking about um, uh, anarch anarchy. Yeah. You know? and, and, and anarchistic uh Christianity. Yeah. And and then we started looking up uh, Tolstoy was, you know, he was bent like that and uh there were other people in the you know, the church in that during that time that were sort of bent the way he was. Yeah. And he was sort of in a way doing a stripped down version of his own Christianity. Yeah. But then we started looking at it and going, you know what, I think the first thing to do is probably to love people. Yeah. And to ask God to give you love for people. And then I think when you genuinely feel love for somebody else, I think then and only then can you help them. Um, before then, it's sort of like you're doing it, you know? And uh, I, I, I just don't think, like, I don't really feel prepared. I feel like I want to disciple and I want to be a disciple and I want to disciple others. Yeah. So I was wondering if you can, like, speak to that and sort of speak to a stripped-down version of a church. And well, I know you, 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 you kind of have that where you are right now. And, yeah. Uh, I'm sort of envious of that. Yeah. <laughs> I, want to, I want to start something, and I have all these friends that are sort of like kind of in the church, one foot out, one, one foot in. And I have people who say they're Christians, and they're, you know, constantly using all kinds of foul language when they talk to me. And their, their life, and I'm not saying I'm perfect, but their life doesn't reflect what they say. And, uh, and that's kind of where I'm at. It, it's kind of sad, but... I do feel like that, like I want that stripped down version, you know, like I'll just start with my family and start a house church like a lot of these Calvary chapels were started, yeah. a lot of the vineyard churches were started, and, and probably other, you know. Here's the thing. Evangelical denominations. Here's the thing, Mike. I wonder if you could, yeah, if you could speak to that. <laughs> yeah, let me, let me try. I'll, I'll do my best off the top of my head. First and foremost, we are supposed to get together with like-minded believers and it may not be for your benefit, but it might be that your light knowledge, your love, your faith is going to help somebody else in that setting. And so I would, I would be totally for going out the Lone Ranger into the mountains and just being with God by myself. But there's no way you can really enact love unless you are engaged with people, especially those people who are trying toward you. So the church, right. the church works as kind of a factory or lab 
where, yes, you learn the lessons from the Word, and that's really what church is for. It's really just to teach the Word. And then give the people a chance to fellowship and then practice with those behaviors that you learn about from Jesus, about loving our neighbor stuff, and you fail, and, and you just grow together that way. So I'm all for the house church, but often those become kind of like this insular little uh, Petri dish that you do, you know, and, and you have someone who shows up who's really difficult, and pretty soon you're like, yeah, how do we get rid of that guy, you know? And, 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 yeah. and so I understand what you're doing, but let me say one more thing. I don't know if this has helped. Love is commensurate in equal proportions to faith. It is not love comes first and our faith increases. I would strongly suggest to you that as your faith increases, your love can increase and no other way. And the way that yep. faith increases is by hearing the word of God and reading the word of God. Your faith increases and you can love. So let me give you an example. You have learned and heard the word of God that says you need to trust God in everything, all right? And someone comes along and says, you know, can I borrow, you're, you're short on funds or something, and someone says, can I borrow $10? I'm out of food for my kids. They're in the church. It's not like a, something out on the street. And, and you, feel, you feel one or two ways. You feel used and like you have to, or there, you have so much faith because God, you believe God is gonna take care of you that you then say, of course I'll help you. And that faith supports the love that you're exhibiting. The lesser of the faith, the lesser love. So you'll, as you grow and you continue to stay in the word and hear the word preached, even if you don't like the church, go to a church that preaches the word, you will grow in that faith, your application of the love will grow as you interact, and then maybe you'll start your own. Nothing wrong with I, that. I totally agree with what you said. Good. Um, I kind of rambled on, but I was, I was, I was like fetching, I was trying to reach for some kind of answer, but I'm, I feel that in my heart. I feel what you're saying is absolutely true. I mean, if, if, you, if you depend on God so much that you just say, here's my life, just do whatever you want with it. Yeah. I'm, I'm your slave, I'm your bond servant. I, I, I really feel that way. I never understood that, because you know, I came out of Mormonism too, so I never really understood that. Yeah. But I, God is, he's working on me. I'm, I, I'm using all these cliches, but it really, you know, there's, he's, he's dealing with me. And, and because he's dealing with me, I mean, because he loves me, he's dealing with me. He's saying, I, I'm, I, I don't need you, but I want you. I love you. And, um, and, and it's, it's, it's a love that's indescribable. Once you feel that for others and you feel that you, you know, you feel that love for others, it, you, it's hard to describe to people unless you're actually living it. You yeah. know, like you said, because you have faith in God, your love will increase. It makes total sense. I mean, this probably says it somewhere in the scriptures, but. Hey, you're, uh, I, those are not cliches uh, at all, Mike. Those are, that's, that's what God does. He works with everybody, everybody yeah. in some way. So you're experiencing that. And that's a, that's a wonderful thing. Another side just to, for me to throw in before we wrap it up and I'll let you wrap it up. But another thing is that love is not always exhibited by uh, doing what other people want you to do. Sometimes it means telling people the hard, cold truth right up front. You know, hey, uh, you know, look at, I just, I don't care what you feel. You're being an idiot. Go back and get with your spouse. This is not right. Or stop treating your child that way. Or, you know, that can be love too. So, but it's the faith that will teach you how to love, I think. 
Is there examples that where Jesus did that? Where he, where he told people you're being ridiculous and oh, not just the Pharisees? All yeah, Peter Peter he ripped a new one about like every fourth page. <laughs> Peter was just constantly getting slammed by Christ. In a parabolic kind of way, right? <laughs> yeah, kind of parabolic and also directly. Like, uh, and directly, too. Yeah, and I think that there's a place for that. Yeah, I think there is, you know. I, I'm, people have ripped me a new one here and there occasionally, <laughs> and, I, and I've not liked them for it. But I realized later that it was actually a good thing for me. I know. It does. It, it, does, it is painful, but it does help. It is. Hey. Like, this guy's a pastor, or this guy's this, and he just, just said, look, you need to do this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that can be tough. Hey, my brother, thanks for uh, watching uh, Mike and Hopewell Junction, New York. Said New Jersey. Yeah, God bless you. We support you wholeheartedly, and I'd love to come up to Utah and help you guys. I mean, I just want to be a, a servant. I got a family that I got to take care of. Right now. Come we on got, out. We got family out there. We got family out in California, so you never know. One day we'd we'll love show to up at the studio. <laughs> we'd love to see you, Mike. God bless you. All right, God bless you. Bye. Bye-bye. Quickly, I'm an atheist, was raised a Catholic. I was watching episode 162 where you asked a caller if he was attending a Christian church. He said, yes, I attend St. Anne's. And you responded, yeah, but have you had a chance to go to a Christian church where they teach the Bible? She goes on, I know you have problems with Catholic teachings of good works, role of Mary, and transubstantiation, among other doctrines, but you are incorrect if you believe that Catholics do not teach the Bible during Mass. I don't know if you've ever been to a Catholic Mass. I have, but you have to know... Uh, but you had, if you had, you would know that they do two readings from the New Testament every week, and a priest also does a reading from one of the Gospels each week, which he then follows with his homily, uh, which is a sermon, explaining how the Gospel reading exemplifies Christ's teachings. Congratulations on your new network, et cetera, et cetera. That's from Madeline S. Um, that's why I talked about the bread of life. I realize the Catholic Church reads from scripture and things and I'm, I'm not I'm not trying to say you do it my way or the highway there's all kinds of ways with teaching the Bible and it being read and stuff it's always good whenever it can be but bottom line there's just a difference if this book is the Word of God you know and that that's a big if for a lot of people but if this is God's Word and I believe it completely is God's Word uh, then we ought to do everything we can to get it into our heads and hearts. And to, to soft sell that or to back from that in order to do other things uh, to make the church run better or whatever, I think it's a waste of time. Churches to learn this, which helps us learn about God. That's the best I can say about that, Madeline, but thanks for watching. Join us next week. We're going to start getting into some of the good things that uh, these religions uh, propose and some of the bad things as we continue on week by week. We're also going to get into an examination, a three-part examination of how the LDS Church responds to the Latin American nations and the tricks that they play in reaching the Latin American people. I think that's going to be an interesting uh, uh, few shows. So stay with us and be with us as we prepare to get this station off the ground March 1st. God bless you. We'll see you next week here on Harlem Matter. Too much brew. Good job, crowd.